You're listening to an Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. AGO Talks are recorded live in the gallery and feature artists, writers, and curators exploring how art shapes and inspires us. Please visit us online at agonet slash talks. Good evening and welcome. My name's Gillian McIntyre and I coordinate the adult public programs here. And it's a great delight this evening to welcome Douglas Piers, who is going to give us the second in a series of five talks to go with our Maharaja Splendors of the Raj exhibition, which I personally am very grateful for because it's a very difficult uh, show to tour if you don't have depth of knowledge in Indian history and so on, which I think by April I'll still be struggling to get that. Uh, Doug, Douglas Pierce has been Dean of the Faculty of Graduate Studies and Associate Vice President Graduate at York University since 2007. Previously, he was Professor of History and Associate Dean and Interim Dean of the Faculty of Social Sciences at the University of Calgary. He is the author of Between Mars and Mammon, Colonial Armies and the Garrison State in Early 19th Century India, 1995, India Under Colonial Rule, 1700 to 1885, 2006, and numerous other publications. We had a list this long. I'd have been here for at least 10 minutes. Uh, Currently, with Nandini Guptu, he is currently co-editing India and the British Empire, a companion volume in the Oxford History of the British Empire series. So Doug will give a a talk, and then we'll have a chance for Q&A at the end. So do be thinking of questions. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I should start, first of all, with an apology and an acknowledgement. The apology uh, is to uh, you, the fact that I am a complete um, disaster when it comes to PowerPoint. I'm not going to be doing PowerPoint per se, but it's the only way I could actually get slides on here. And already it's gone funny on me. So um, I've just proven it. Okay, there. Oh. Okay, this is, this is really annoying. Yeah, that'll do it. Yeah. Um, my 10-year-old daughter wasn't available to help me tonight. Um, also, I also want to make some acknowledgments. Um, the Darbar of 1877 is something I've been interested in for a long time, but a lot of what I'm going to talk about today is actually the product of uh, delightful experience I've had working with some very, very gifted graduate students over the years who've tackled various questions of the 19th century. And in particular, two of them, Chris Radford and Daniel Kinsey, have both written or write working on theses that relate to this period. And so I have shamelessly drawn on their insights, um, and because you can't do footnotes in an oral lecture, I'm acknowledging at the outset. I'd like to start, first of all, with two quick quotes to try and frame this a little bit. First is from Lord Lytton, Viceroy in India to Victoria. He declared, the further east you go, the greater becomes the importance of a bit of bunting. Then there was his telegraph, 1st January 1877, the day of the Darbar, the end of the day, he writes to Victoria, sorry, he writes to Disraeli this time, there can be no question of the complete success of this first imperial ceremony. So Lytton clearly sees this as a great success. Question, I guess, to start off with is, why study an event that only lasted one day, so there was a kind of a, there was a little bit of a lead up to it. Uh, it only cost five hundred thousand pounds, especially when you consider that during the same period we've got a crippling famine in southern India and uh, western India, 
likely caused the um, have a mortality of around 10 million people. We also had the beginning of the Afghan War, Second Afghan War. Those events have tended to dominate the discussion of the period. Yet we have this odd punctuation of this Darbar. I would suggest to you that the reason why I, as a historian, am fascinated by the Darbar um, is that it provides a wonderful portal through which we can explore both the ambition and the limitations of colonial rule, but most particularly the contradictions. And what I hope to do over the space of uh, the time I have here is talk about some of those contradictions, because in many ways, my own research is informed by the, the, the dilemma of reconciling the kind of contradictions one finds in the 19th century. Contradictions such as an empire which prided itself on rule of law, but which depended so heavily upon coercion. I mean, the critical instrument in the, of the British in India was the military. Um, also, you have the contradiction between uh, an empire which rhetorically, and I think substantively at times, was committed to reform, to modernization, yet turned around and celebrated events like the Darbar, the princes. The princes become the darlings of key segments of British officialdom in this period. And what becomes even more interesting is that you look at the place of those Indians who seem to aspire to and mimic, in many ways, the attributes the British were, were claiming to inculcate, modernization and Western education, they are pretty well written out of the story. They're the group which the British, on the one hand, claim to be wanting to bring into being, yet it's the events like this Darbar and other events the British do, the way in which they view the princes, which kind of exposes this fascinating contradiction, a contradiction which one governor-general in the early 19th century, when reflecting upon his experience, he declared, I'm a Whig to the east of the Cape, sorry, I'm a Whig to the west of the Cape, and a Tory to the east. This idea that, and I've seen it in other governor generals too, that it's in the long voyage out to India, that their political landscape, their political vision changed. They became more, more conservative, much more Tory. I would also argue, and as I think it very captured very nicely in things like the Darbar, much more romantic. The Darbar, India appealed to a romantic imagination. Um, just as an aside, uh, if you look at the most popular author in India through much of the 19th century, both amongst the British, but also amongst the educated Indian classes, it was Sir Walter Scott. His popularity dies out in the 1820s and 30s in Britain. In India, he's held up and retained. He was the only novelist, for example, that was permitted in a lot of the barrack libraries. So this kind of romantic, feudal imagery becomes redolent in 19th century India. And so the Darbar gives us a chance to try and tease out some of the reasons for it. I also want to very briefly define one term, a term which I kept coming across in contemporary critics of the Darbar of 1877. Many of them, and I'll give some quotes later that bring this up, referred to it as Brummagen. And Brummagen is a word which has long since fallen out of use, but it referred to cheap, tinsely goods produced in Birmingham, um, which was kind of an interesting kind of Tory perspective on Birmingham, the workshop of the world, which kind of exemplifies the Industrial Revolution, but also captured the kind of crassness of industrialization. And it's, these are the kinds of things which sort of weave their way through the experience and reportage on the Darbar of 1877. Now, the Darbar of 1877 was rooted in a long tradition, the Durbar tradition, a tradition which predated the British. The Durbar 
was an event designed to bring together subordinates with their superiors. Now, the critical thing when the British encountered it and when they were using it, and, and there are bars going back into the, 19th, sorry, the 18th century amongst the British, the British in many ways misunderstood the symbolic importance of the Durbar. The Durbar under the Mughal courts and their elements in the Rajput courts and other groups, so it's not unique to one religious community. The Durbar was an act of incorporation, a series of rituals that were designed to bind princes and, and that to the king. And they were done through a whole series of rituals that usually consisted of the exchange of a present with, in return, they would often receive a gift from the sovereign. And oftentimes, and it's very important, the gift the sovereign often provided, in the Mughal court at least, was called the kilat. It was a robe. And again, the, 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 the symbolism of the robe was very important because the robe was designed to in, envelop the individual. And the most important individuals would actually be enveloped. They would have the kilat draped over them by the Mughal emperor. So it's a, it's, it's a form of ritualized incorporation. When the British adopted the darbar in their encounters with the groups that they were conquering. They kept the Darbar, but they reduced it to a transactional uh, episode, one in which when the gift was received, it was often whisked away, valued, and then a corresponding gift of equal value was given back to the ruler. The gifts that were collected were never the property of the British official that was designed to stop the kind of uh, wanton corruption which had been so common in the 18th century, but the gifts were stored and they were doled out to other rulers. So in a sense, they were recycling gifts long before it became an issue in many Christmas households in Canada. So you have this kind of long-standing tradition. The British incorporate the Darbar. In the second half of the 19th century, the r- purpose of the Darbar changes dramatically. And the first one where it really changes is the one in 1877. And for reasons I'll come back to a bit later, the British did not originally call it a Darbar. Lord Lytton, the Viceroy, did not want it to be seen as a Darbar, but it would become known generically as one of the great Darbars. And the reason he called the Darbar in 1877 was a way of handling the implications for multiple audiences of the decision in 1876 to declare Queen Victoria Empress of India. The Royal Titles Act of 1876 becomes the, um, sort of sets the stage. Oh, I, again, this is my PowerPoint uh, noise. That's just a picture of the, some of the famine victims of the period. I, I meant to show that earlier as part of the juxtaposition. Um, I'll come to the, this, this slide in a minute. What, what happened with the Royal Titles Act of 1877 was that it was intended to declare Victoria Empress of India. There was a feeling in 1876 that, that, the, that Queen Victoria needed a different title to, in a sense, capture her authority in India. Now, the roots of this have been open to some dispute, and here again, I, uh, my, my special thanks to my students who helped work on some of these angles here. The critical figure in making the decision to become Empress of India was, in fact, Victoria herself. Uh, it's often been, been associated, and you'll see some cartoons later, it's often attributed to Disraeli. Lytton certainly egged on the Queen, no doubt about it. But Victoria herself, and this is evident in her, in her correspondence in the archives, 
Victoria, very early on in the 1840s, took on a special interest in India. India, of all her colonies, resonated most deeply with her. And there are a lot of different speculations as to why that's the case. But it was certainly exhibited frequently in her own behavior. She had her own munchi, uh, language tutor. She learned rudimentary Hindustani. Uh, there's no real clear evidence how good she was at it, but she certainly struggled away to learn uh, Hindustani. There are rumors that she regularly consumed curry. She pressed the government unsuccessfully to have a permanent guard of Sikh soldiers as part of her attendance. She chided Disraeli when she wasn't getting regular updates on what was happening in India. She scolded Salisbury when he was prime minister uh, for referring to Indians as black men. She commissioned this room in Osborne House on the Isle of Wight, which was her favorite summer residence, called the Darbar Room. And just as an aside, the Darbar Room was actually designed by Lockwood Kipling, Rudyard Kipling's father, head of an art school in Lahore. And Lockwood Kipling would become one of the key figures in designing a lot of the ritual paraphernalia of the 1877 Darbar. And since 1843, she'd been wanting a title to declare, that, that declared her position in India. Now, prior to 1858, that was actually quite difficult. Uh, and without going into a long lecture and, and curing the insomniacs in the, in the audience here, before 1858, the Queen had a really ambivalent role when it came to India. India was still nominally under the East India Company. Uh, it was, in effect, acting as the agent of the British government. But constitutionally, it was a very ambivalent role. As late as 1835 the coins minted by the East India Company in India still bore the name and the, and, the, and the profile of the Mughal emperor. And so the Queen's position was rather ambivalent. In 1858, following the Indian Rebellion of 1857-58, the East India Company was wound up. Direct crown rule was imposed, though I hasten to add a lot of the structures, policies, and personnel of the East India Company were simply ported over into the new government. And then the Royal Proclamation of 1858, issued in the name of Queen Victoria, she became, in effect, Queen of India. The kind of um, constitutional uh, ambiguity previous to 1858 was gone. Nevertheless, um, she was not satisfied with the, being called, um, simply called Queen of India. Her interest in India was actually growing. Her and her consort, Prince Albert, created the Star of India, a, 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 uh, uh, an honor designed for, for, for uh, key officials in India. Albert went so far as to actually design the ribbons himself. She has, was a great fan of the royal prerogative. And bear in mind that in 19th century Britain, the royal prerogative was continually being kind of whittled away at. In India, however, she felt that it, it should be there. Um, in, in sorry, 1875, her son, the Prince of Wales, undertook a tour of India, and the reaction to him, the kind of popularity, the kind of media coverage, further intensified her wish. And in fact, in, there is some evidence in the 1850s she was also referring herself to Empress. And then superimposed on that, you've got Lord Lytton going out to India, and I'll come to him shortly, going out to India as Viceroy, and you have Disraeli, the Prime Minister. Both of them, for a variety of reasons, really see this as critical, since elevating Victoria's status. It was, however, a highly controversial move. 
Uh, and this cartoon from Punch captures that. Um, the queen with two heads, you know, sort of looking at a pub that's, that's changing the, you know, the typical pub in England known as the queen's head is now becoming the two queen's head. Because having two titles, queen and empress, posed a lot of challenge. One newspaper, and here I introduced the Brummagen, referred to it as electroplating the British crown with Brummagem imperialism. The title Empress uh, was very alarming to a lot of liberals in 19th century Britain. It smacked of continental despotism. Uh, as one argued, if queen and empress have the same meaning, one is superfluous. If not, one contradicts the other. One is constitutional and the other despotic. Concerns were also raised. She's queen of England. She's, she's empress of India. What about the other colonies? Are they going to feel left out? As far as I can tell, most of the colonies didn't care, but that was certainly a concern that was being raised. The word empress, therefore, caused concerns, and there was some rather imaginative individuals that were consulted to come up with other names. And in going over the names that were being discussed as, as possible alternatives to empress, what I found was something which seemed almost to come out of the you know, various uh, uh, 20th century um, uh, movies. Monarcha, Gubernator, Sounds like something Arnold Schwarzenegger would come up with. Basilius, I think that was in Harry Potter. Primasarius, uh, obviously Jurassic Park. And Dominus were some of the titles that were, to, were used. There was a brief flirtation with trying to find a, a, an authentic Indian title. Uh, Padshaw was the one that, that many people thought of. But that was, again, uh, dumped because of its, it was seen to be too Persian in inspiration and therefore alien to India, which is rather ironic. Questions were raised also about her title. Queen Victoria, amongst her, the long title, included defender of the faith. What faith exactly was she now going to defend? For India, the title that was, separate, that was settled on was Kaiser I Hind. Um, Kaiser was felt to have long historic roots. It obviously overlapped with Caesar. There weren't the problems at this point about it also sounding very Germanic, Interestingly, later on, they dumped the German side of it. Um, and the end result was Empress of India or Kaiseri Hind in India. It was only intended for use in India, and I stress this, but Victoria herself began to, in a sense, subvert that. She signed, her signature was Victoria R.I., Regina A. Imperatrice. Reactions in India to the title... Um, Bear in mind that we don't have a very large literate population at this time. There are Indian newspapers. Most of them are very conscious of being accused of, of subversion, so they weren't as outspoken as perhaps they wanted to be. A few lauded the title. Others wondered why a new title was necessary. One, I think, very, very tellingly, said that if the whole purpose of the Proclamation of 1858 was to put Indians and the British on the same level as subjects of the Queen... Why did they need two different titles? So that was the royal title issue. It proved to be far more contentious in Britain. Over the course of 1877, the title itself was, was becoming very, very contentious, and this was very worrisome. And, and, and one of the reasons for having the Darbar initially was to celebrate the title, but, but later on it became a way of trying to um, assuage the critics of the title by demonstrating there's this popular uptake for it. Now, our other key character here is Edward Robert Bulwer-Lytton, Viceroy, 1876 to 1880, 
For those people who like biographies, perhaps one of the most fascinating uh, viceroys to look at. Uh, once described as a minor poet and major popinjay, rather curious creature, um, and for many a rather odd choice. Professionally, he had served in the diplomatic corps, but he never really had any exposure to India. Moreover, uh, he never really had any great administrative experience. He was simultaneously very pompous and also very casual, flippant, highly romantic, and coming back to the paradox I mentioned before, also very modern in some respects. The appointment came as a great surprise. Um, As I said, he was a very odd choice. Dogged by controversy, I think the historical record on him, uh, kind of uh, viewpoint, is very, very negative. The Durbar um, certainly stuck to him and not in the way he intended. There was the famine. There was the Afghan war. You'll also find that he introduced legislation that was designed to muzzle the Indian press. He also introduced excise and tariff policies that were intended to open up India to Lancashire cottons. And when he resigned in 1880 the Indian government was nearly bankrupt. Highly romantic figure, nevertheless. Uh, his reputation was largely based upon his, his uh, poetry. Uh, in many ways, this may explain uh, the attraction of him to Disraeli. Disraeli himself was a writer. Um, and he also, I want to emphasize, had very, very close relations with Victoria. Victoria did correspond regularly, directly, with her viceroys in India, something which drove the British government nuts, This was certainly the case with Lytton. There was tremendous correspondence between them. And what is very telling, Lytton, in some cases, some of his letters were addressed to Dear Victoria, which was really quite an interesting breach of protocol to approach her that way. Um, He also, there were also, uh, he had, uh, uh, I said, his flippancy. One story which I find particularly revealing about him was that uh, in a rather tragic uh, uh, accident, at least for one of his aide-de-camp, one of his aides-de-camps was emasculated by a donkey bite. Uh, Lytton's response was, we don't need eunuchs in this court. This picture, in many ways, you'll often see, this is one of the most common pictures of, of, of Lytton. And for many people, the, the kind of slouching posture he has there exemplifies Lytton. He's not the stiff, formal Victorian we want. He's this kind of casual kind of man about town. I should add, though, that there, there's, a, there's a good medical reason for him sitting this way, which um, doesn't, dis, doesn't discount the fact that he was all those things. But in fact, he was, it was very, very difficult for him to sit straight. He suffered from extremely excruciating hemorrhoids through his whole career. And it's very hard to find a picture of him where he's not slouching this way. Um, and in, now that I have tenure and all the rest of it, I am going to do a history of hemorrhoids because nobody else has done it. Um, <laughs> Maybe title it Piles of Troubles or Troubles with Piles, something along those lines. In any case, that, that, that kind of puts that picture in, in, in context. Again, the poetry was what he was known for before he came. Poetry that was described by some as vast, stale poems. And rather interestingly, he was accused of plagiarism on several instances, including by his own father, uh, who was quite a famous novelist. Um, he suffered a nervous breakdown in 1868, an assassination attempt in 1879, loved theatricals, was extremely flirtatious, no evidence of, of extramarital affairs, but the, uh, the reputation that the hill station of Shimla acquired for being a place where all sorts of hijinks were happening, um, hijinks that were, for some reason, the British referred, 
to his poodle fakery. Uh, basically, young, eligible, uh, unmarried officers going up to the hills and carrying on with married women up there. A lot of that was dated to the time of Lord Lytton. He seems to have set in motion something up there. He also pressed the government, and they laughed at him. He wanted to have special uniforms designed for his own court. So in this respect, very romantic, very futile individual. But he again, you know, sort of personifies these kind of contradictions because, well, it was the princes that he had idealized. He was highly romantic and all the rest of it. He was also very committed to modernization in, in some unique ways. Um, free trade was a big thing for him, and that was why he wanted to reduce the tariffs to open up India to, to British textiles. He was also deeply committed to railroads. And in his response to the famines, he adopted a very Malthusian you know, free trade approach that you shouldn't dis- just distribute relief Relief should only come with work. And as many historians have demonstrated, this only prolonged the problem there. But it wasn't simply because he was necessarily cruel or heartless, though one could argue those that were at work too. There was, in a sense, a, a, his commitment to free trade came into play there. Now, the Darbar itself, uh, again, these are just some of the pictures of a number of the princes that, that attended there, um, marked by... The characteristics, I would say, hybridity, excessive imagination, and grotesque. By hybridity, what really singles out the Darbar is this rather curious, often paradoxical mix of what the British think is Indian, what might be Indian, and what I would call unchecked medieval imaginations at time. And I would argue it's very much Lord Lytton's event. As he put it, it would be good policy to give as much theatrical effect to the publication of the new title. He saw this as critical. He was convinced that if it was successful, there would be multiple benefits. Critics of the royal title in England would be convinced of the value. He privately was writing to the editor of the Times, encouraging him to give a positive spin to it, but also to send out a uh, special correspondent. But at one point in November 1876, well, the planning is well underway, and the planning, I should add, was very, very secretive. They did not want to announce this. He knew it would open up to ridicule. But when they were planning it in November 1876, and we heard words from London that the royal titles bill might fall, he began to wonder what he could do. How can you have a Durbar when the whole purpose was to celebrate the title? The ostensible purpose of the Durbar was to bind the princes more closely to Britain, They were the principal subject and object of the Durbar. The princes played a particularly important role both in the actual political administration of India as they were defining it, but also in the British political imagination. Now, politically, the position of the princes in India stems back into the 18th century, a policy which would become articulated and idealized in what the British referred to as indirect rule. They idealized this policy of working through Indian princes and Indian rulers on the basis this were the institutions with which the Indian people were most familiar. I would add, however, that while that became the rhetoric justifying it, and which became later exported to other places, particularly in Africa, like Nigeria and that, what, what the indirect rule really spoke to was turning necessity into a virtue. It was really a form of imperialism on cheap. 
the British really did lack the resources in India to have the kind of direct rule which a lot of their plans demanded. Far cheaper for them to find compliant rulers and work through them. So there's a long history of the princes. But the princes had in the 1840s and 50s become rather marginalized. And in the British interpretation of the events that led up to the outbreak of the Indian Rebellion of 1857-58, often known as the Indian Mutiny, they singled out the marginalization of the princes as a critical factor. So after 1858, the British began to try and rebuild the relations with the princes, prop them up, celebrate them, idealize them as their kind of chief partners in the administration of India. I would add that while there was obviously pragmatic calculations at work, the princes also appealed to this kind of feudal romantic imagination that seemed to infect nearly every viceroy that arrived in India. You know, in a sense, the princes became a mirror against which the British could see themselves. And therefore, it, be- it becomes at the heart of this paradox. The officials, at the, or the, the, those individuals in India who rhetoric indicated were the most important, i.e. the westernizing classes, were the individuals that the British too quickly despised and marginalized. The princes, on the other hand, while never really given effective political authority, were celebrated the most. Lytton, in talking about the Darbar and the importance of bringing in the princes, declared, the encouragement of natives does not mean the supremacy of babudam. And babu was the word the British used as a derogatory term to dismiss those westernized English-speaking Indians who became minor functionaries in the government or became merchants and traders. That wasn't the group the British were trying to reach. They really wanted to reach through the princes, bypass the baboos, and through the princes reach that kind of romanticized mass of Indian population who the British felt would respond to the princes. Lytton himself said to, to Victoria in what is one of the more widely quoted instances or examples of this way of thinking, if we have with us the princes, we shall have with us the people. The people of India is political, politically dumb, but not insentient. The hereditary aristocracy is the head, and as the head wills, the body will move. And in order to move that body, Lytton promised Disraeli unprecedented pomp and parade. Another factor, I think, which plays a role in the timing and the, and the way in which the Darbar was staged was that, well, on the one hand, it's aimed back at Britain to convince people of the, of the necessity of the title and of the uh, of kind of the, the durability, popularity of British rule. It was aimed at the Indian people as a way of kind of embedding Britain more firmly in India. The fact that they held it in Delhi, the historic capital, is, is, is indicative of that. But it was also aimed at other groups, and in particular Russia. The great game, the struggle with, with, with Russia over control of Central Asia... That was heating up at this point in time. The Britain had problems with Russia, the Bulgarian question, the Eastern question, but also in Afghanistan. And so this demonstration of pomp and ceremony was also aimed at outside groups to demonstrate the might, the weight, um, the resilience of British authority in India. Now, I said before that when Lytton planned this event, 
He deliberately called it the imperial assemblage. He didn't call it a darbar. The reason he didn't, and quite consciously, was the fact that he intended the imperial assemblage to be bigger, much more public, and also to break with some of the historic traditions associated with darbars. The whole idea of gift-giving was stricken out of it. So that one fundamental incorporative element that was there in the Mughal and Rajput practices was stripped out of it. There were no presents per se. The princes weren't expected to provide anything except their attendants. They were given certain tokens as they left, but it wasn't that kind of uh, incorporative ritual which the British had transformed in this transaction. That was taken out. Also, quite significantly, women were introduced into the Darbar of 1877. Lady Lytton sat beside him on the dais. Um, that was something, again, you wouldn't find happening uh, in the earlier Darbars. And I think what's important about that was, again, this is this kind of paradoxical element of the British. The treatment of women became one of the yardsticks by which they judge other societies. And in the case of India, with incidents like Sati, with Purda, and other events, this was seen as, in a sense, proof of India's backwardness. And so by having Lady Lytton there, it's a way of, uh, of kind of highlighting the difference between Indian society and British society. Well, at the same time, they're trying to perpetuate elements of Indian society. They were worried that some of the princes would not attend, and I've left the, the Nizam of Hyderabad up here. He was a particularly problematic figure for the Darbar of 1877. He was a, mi- a minor. The regent that was acting for him had gone to London, his chief minister, and had dealt directly with the British government, had argued that as an independent prince, the Nizam of Hyderabad dealt with the British government and with Queen Victoria, not through the, uh, um, uh, the, the Viceroy. This obviously was caused considerable alarm for the British. A lot of pressure was placed on the Nizam of Hyderabad to attend. It was with great relief that Lord Lytton would, would eventually inform both Victoria and Israeli that the Nizam of Hyderabad did arrive. So again, that's that. the question of just how much independence the princes enjoyed was always an issue here. More troubling in some ways for Lytton was when the governors of Madras and Bombay, the two other uh, presidencies in India, they themselves um, had suggested to Lytton that they really should not attend. The famines were devastating their, their, the countryside, and they both wanted to stay behind and, uh, you know, oversee the famine relief projects. Lytton was outraged. He wrote to the governor of Bombay and was perhaps the most telling quote as to Lytton's, the emphasis he's placing on the Darbar. He wrote, the failure of the Darbar would be more disastrous to the permanent interests of the empire than 20 famines. And bear in mind, this is a famine that cost roughly 10 million uh, deaths. At the same time, as news of the famine was hitting England, Lytton was trying to downplay its significance. He would write to Victoria that the reports had been exaggerated. He claimed that the camps were, and I quote, swarming with idle, able-bodied paupers. Again, that kind of Victorian notion that you, you don't just provide relief to the idle, you only give it to the working poor. And he said there were no working poor, really. Some of the later defenders, in trying to provide apologies for him, including a fairly recent biographer in the, in the 1970s, 
claimed that actually by bringing the governors to Delhi, it gave them a chance to talk and, 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 and on a one-to-one basis and plot an effective strategy for the famine. I found no evidence that those talks ever occurred. I think it was somewhat retroactive, wishful thinking. Darbar itself, the plans, again, something like this, you know, had to be very carefully managed. Lytton was very, very hands-on. His correspondent indicates that he was fasting with all details. He surrounded himself with experts. It was all conducted in private. Um, because, as he put it, Asiatic enthusiasm, though by no means insincere, is never spontaneous. And so he had to find some way of, 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 of controlling and directing that enthusiasm. He also said, quote, the decorative details of an Indian pageant are like those parts of an animal, which are of no use at all for butcher's meat, and are even unfit for scientific dissection, but from which augurs the omens that move armies and influence princes. The person he entrusted with most of the planning for the Darbar was General Roberts, who would later become famous um, as the commander during the uh, Afghan War, would eventually become commander-in-chief, um, Robert's appointment as commander during the Afghan War largely came about because of the, of, of the, the good work in Lytton's eyes he did in planning the, the uh, Darbar. The cap itself sprawled over five miles, located just north of Delhi, and uh, will become later known as Coronation Park, the same venue where subsequent Darbars would take place. A hundred villages were temporar- temporarily taken over and their populations relocated to create space for it. The actual layout, again, differed from the Darbars. One of the things that really was a problem in previous Darbars was endless debates over hierarchy. Who got to proceed first? Who got what gift? The rather ingenious solution that they adopted for the Darbar of 1877 was a semicircle in which the princes themselves were grouped in regions. So you have the princes from Maharashtra together. You have the princes from... Central India together, princes from Bengal, princes from, from Punjab. They'd be grouped together and interspersed amongst them would be the British officials with whom they worked. And those were all arranged equidistant from the central tent, which is where the, uh, the, the, the viceregal tent, which is where Lytton and his party were, were located. Roads, sewers, water supplies all had to be laid on. Gas lamps were provided. Um, Notably, the English part of the camp was laid out in a very English way. It was on a grid. Flowers and grass were laid out to kind of recreate kind of an English landscape. Indian rulers, however, were encouraged to set up their camps however they wanted. The only thing the British were particularly worried about was whether there would be too many people, so there were limits, maximum of 500 per ruler. And they were also worried about the outbreak of cholera. Um, And so there were strict cholera uh, controls. And this created this kind of interesting juxtaposition, which again I think speaks to these kind of very interesting contradictions for the British. You have this nicely ordered British lines with, with, with flowers and lawns and all that kind of stuff. And then you've got the kind of picturesque Indian camps with all the bustle and the noise and the sounds and all that, which were you know, sort of communicated back in artwork and in poetry and all that to kind of invoke this notion of exotic India. Cost, as I said, estimated around 500,000 pounds. It is, I think, important to note that the princes were expected to cover their own costs. They had to pay their own way there. Though Lytton did say in some private letters, 
that for those princes who couldn't afford it, money would be found. Because it was always obviously very, very important for them to show up. Now, the Darbar was the big thing to celebrate the Royal Titles Act. Lytton had asked for several other things which he didn't get, and just to mention them, he wanted to set up a separate Privy Council for India, a Privy Council which would include the princes. The reason that he wanted that Privy Council was both to, in a sense, honor them, reward them, but he also wanted to offset what, the group which he actually found most disturbing much of the time, and that were the Europeans in India. He actually despised a lot of the Europeans in India and found them rather troublesome. And so if he could set up a Privy Council and, and use them for, for, you know, as, as a way of administering India, it's one way of bypassing this rather troublesome group. He also wanted, as a display of largesse, and in keeping with, with Indian customs and tradition, he wanted widespread distribution of alms to the poor. He didn't get that. It happened in a few places in India in localized areas. There was a little bit of, of, of dispensation in, um, uh, in Delhi. But his attempts to convince the British government to set aside and to help raise a large fund for that failed. He also, and this is where this kind of romantic side of him just really starts to go crazy, he wanted to set up an Indian Herald's College, kind of a Burke's Peerage for India, that would kind of regulate and establish genealogies and pedigrees, coats of arms and all that, in order to kind of create this kind of idealized aristocracy. Um, government didn't approve that either. Parties began to arrive at the end of December, 1877. A couple more of the princes. This is a picture of the Darbar grounds of 1877. The Darbar itself, the big event, January 1st, 1877. The week previously, there were meetings, lunches, and that kind of thing amongst the princes. Small gifts were given out, you know, medals of the queen, etc., to the princes. Estimated 100,000 people in attendance. And just to put this in context... 100,000 people in attendance, that's roughly equal to the number of people that would have died in the week just because of famine. There were 63 princes plus 300 titular chiefs and native gentlemen, quote, unquote. There were European worthies, governors, local officials. Um, Notably absent, who hadn't been invited, the Eurasian community. Again, that was a group who the British particularly tended to despise in this period. Non-official Europeans people who weren't employed by the government but were there in other capacities. They were there in small numbers, and there was actually grumbling amongst them that they were being ignored. The event itself began with kind of a triumphal march on elephants by the viceroy from his camp to the dais. The other princes converged from their camps on their elephants. He then read a pronouncement pronouncement from the Queen. It had actually been written by Disraeli, but the Queen had annotated it. Nobody heard it. It was too big, too loud, you know, there was too many people there. So fortunately, uh, copies of it had been, had been printed, distributed before. The princes and the chiefs were all given various um, you know, items of commemoration, medals, gold medals for the more important ones, silver medals for the other. The princes were given banners, um, these are just some other pictures up of, of the, uh, um, the event captured in the English press at the time. Um, that, that picture there, another tech, piece of technology I get to use, um, that there is one of the banners that were produced. Lytton was particularly obsessed with these, with these banners. 
This is where Lockwood Kipling had a hand in them. Uh, and if you look closely at them, they really are kind of a, 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 a decoupage of British medievalism. Uh, the shape, the use of coats of arms, um, and just as an aside, the silver chariot that some of you have seen, or the silver carriage that you might have seen uh, in the exhibition there. The fact there's a coat of arm in there, I think, ties in with this attempt to kind of uh, embed in India the notion of a coat of arms. Um, the coats of arms, they tried to find symbols that spoke to the pedigree lineage that they were celebrating. Uh, Rajputs, for example, would all have sons woven into them. In some cases where the, uh, the prince was of a new creation, Maharaja of Jammu Kashmir, for example, um, that had only been created in the 1850s, they ended up having three wavy lines symbolizing the Himalayas and three roses suggesting the veil of Kashmir. Um, again, very, very Victorian, very, very medieval with this kind of weird Indian elements thrown in. Now, this is one of those things which, you know, good idea, but uh, good intentions can often uh, backfire. When they designed them, and they designed these really elaborate brass poles to carry them, nobody had factored in the weight of them. And an individual couldn't actually carry them. So they had two people had to carry them. And apparently they were dropping and falling, and they weren't able to actually carry them in the kind of very kind of noble way that they were intended. Um, the other thing which they did, and ironically it kind of parallels the kind of great inflation that's happening in universities everywhere, each of the princes was given an increase in the number of guns of their salute. Signified your rank, 21, 17, 19. They all got an increase, but it was the same increase. So everybody just moved up a notch. That itself would cause problems, because when they had the 101-gun salute later on, the assembled elephants stampeded. Um, there were injuries, reports of death. I haven't been able to confirm them. Um, but there was also a tremendous problem of all the dust that was thrown up by it. So people couldn't actually see some of the things that were going on because of this 101-gun salute. Um, the princes themselves, um, they, them, they, in response, were kind of encouraged to do something to honor the, the queen. They raised a subscription to have a painting done for her. The painting was done by a, a then-famous painter, Val Princep. I'm not an artist, so I, I can't really speak to that. Uh, what was interesting was that he wrote, he, he did this beautiful painting for the, for, the, for, the, for, for the queen. But in his own letters, private letters to a friend in England, he wrote, Oh, horror, what have I to paint? A kind of thing that outdoes the crystal palace in hideosity. Never was there such a brummagen, or that, that word is again, ornament, or more atrocious taste. They've been heaping ornament on ornament, color on color. Uh, there are other reports in Britain at the same time about how garish, how tasteless, etc. this thing was. Alms, as I said, were distributed in Delhi. There were fireworks. 16,000 prisoners, usually prisoners with very light sentences, were released, again, in the name of the Queen. Um, Punjab University College became the University of Punjab at this time. But as I said, you know, the reaction to it was mixed, and I'll come back to a bit more of that later on. We had the elephant charge. Horses also stampeded. Uh, one newly arrived officer from Britain who had supposedly studied Hindustani but didn't get it right nearly caused a mutiny amongst his own soldiers, most of whom were Muslim, when he said to them, he was supposed to say, sowers, which is soldiers, 
I'm going to hang a billa or medallion around their neck. Instead, he said, Suars, I'm going to hang a billy around your neck. Pigs, I'm going to hang a cat around your neck. Um, so, and there are other episodes like that where, again, they just didn't quite get it happening right. Indian newspapers, a select group of Indian newspapers were invited. Uh, most of those that were invited were kind of polite about it. Um, other Indian responses, Maharaja Gekwar of Baroda, writing in 1937. He'd been a young, he'd been 14 years old at the uh, Darbar. He, he recounted, he said, we all felt that it was a great occasion, but I'm afraid we did not understand very much of its significance which kind of belies what Lytton was thinking at the time. There were critics in Britain, critics who said it was evidence of an unrestrained imagination, one writing, a tinsel title has been proclaimed with a tawdry and theatrical display of magnificence. And the Times, in a rather interesting backhanded comment, especially given how much effort Lytton had put into cultivating them, referred to the gorgeousness of his oriental fancy. What... Here's the punch cartoon, Queen Victoria, um, again using technology. Here we have uh, Lytton, Disraeli, you know, kind of being mocked here. Typical symbols you associate with it, a rather kind of mild jibe at what's happening. A more pointed comment, however, emerges in this one, new crowns for old. There's Queen Victoria. Again, the, the punch is very, very careful to show her in a very respectful way. She's still wearing black. Uh, as she was then seen. There's Disraeli. There's the crown being given to her. What I think is fascinating, if you, if you look at the way Punch is depicting Disraeli and other commentaries in the late 1870s, a strong streak of anti-Semitism is emerging. I mean, you look at the kind of symbols, the nose, the beard, and all that. I mean, he is seen as being an, or an, an Oriental himself. Now, he has partly himself to blame. On, on several occasions, he did say that because of his background, he could understand Orientals better than others. It's, however, being turned against him here in these kind of anti-Semitic images that are being shown. The other thing which is happening in this time is that we're starting to see increasing discomfort in Britain as reports of the famine come in. Um, this is one punch cartoon. This one here, I wouldn't say is harshly critical. Um, and since, since we got John Bull coming in here saying we have to deal with it, um, it's not referring directly to the Darbar, but it indicates kind of a, a growing appreciation of the seriousness of the situation and the need to take measures. And again, elsewhere you'd find in, the, in, in Punch and other things, growing kind of sense of discomfort with the, with the extent to which um, Lytton had not responded promptly to it. Uh, reports of uh, dogs eating bodies. You've got missionary accounts coming back. There are reports, and, and there's some dispute amongst historians as to whether they, these can be substantiated, of families driven to uh, cannibalism. There are substantiated accounts of parents having to sell their children in order to try and survive in the South. So it's becoming something a, a bit of an issue. The in the end, trying to assess the impact, you know, using Lytton's terms, was it a success? 
I would say it was a success as far as the British imagination is concerned because they would have two more, 1903 and 1911. And both Darbars drew heavily upon this one, uh, carried along. They, they, they fine-tuned them and the impact of technology and that. But the British were convinced the Darbar. They, were con- they remained deeply convinced of the importance of the princes. So to that extent, it worked. It also perpetuated a highly symbolic role for the princes. And some have argued it kind of perpetuated them and sustained them though some would argue frozen aspic over time. I would also suggest to you that this fixation, this kind of medieval fascination with princes and that, in the long run, as far as India is concerned, perpetuated the ossification, kind of the, the perpetuation of the various feudal elements in India, which really kind of hampered um, the growth of democracy. It also created political problems. I mean, Disraeli himself was forced to resign in 1880. Lytton, as soon as he heard of Disraeli's resignation, Lytton followed suit. Uh, And Disraeli's resignation, while not directly related to the Darbar, it's clear that the combination of the Darbar, the war in Afghanistan, and the famine had provided an opening for Gladstone to criticize Disraeli for this kind of unchecked imperialism, an imperialism which was very un-English in its nature. And by invoking the notion of it being un-English, we almost come full circle back to the debate about the Royal Titles Act. The Empress of India was not an English title. So the ambivalence of the period is brought out. Um, This, I'll just conclude with this picture here. This is Coronation Park, Delhi today. And I think in some ways it kind of captures this kind of oddly, um, uh, this kind of odd legacy. Uh, This is where all the Durbars were held. when the British left India, we, we had all these statues there of various distinguished officials. It's overgrown now. A lot of the, the statues have disappeared. But they're still there. There's this kind of odd legacy living in this kind of twilight world um, that arose um, out of British rule. And again, the Darbar, I think, provides this great opportunity to kind of tease out these various aspects. And with that, um, I thank you for your patience, and I'd uh, be delighted to answer any questions you might have. Who was the next viceroy and the next prime minister, and how did policy uh, vis-a-vis India change in 1880? One of my students is here, and he'll correct me if I'm wrong. Um, it's Lord Ripon, I believe. Uh, and glad, yeah, I'm right. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. Uh, it was Lord Ripon came out, um, and Lord Ripon was sent out by Gladstone. Gladstone became the, the, the prime minister. I think there's a danger of, of exaggerating how much change would occur. Uh, I liken the Raj in some cases to a super tanker. It's very hard to change direction. Ripon certainly came in with a much more um, reforming agenda, but he himself fell afoul of the kind of entrenched conservatism. The most famous case um, it was the Ilbert Bill. This was a piece of legislation that was intended to ensure that Indian magistrates, magistrates of Indian birth, would have authority over Europeans as well as Indians in the upcountry areas. And this created such a backlash that Ripon had to, had to backpedal. And Gladstone also had to backpedal because uh, what you might want to call generically white society in India, with the backing of the Times and other newspapers, which were, I wouldn't say 
you know, kind of fossilized conservatives by any stretch of the imagination, they saw this as going way too far. And so there are these kind of checks and balances that were going on. Um, there are some scholars today who work on famine policy have suggested that some of the ideas that, that, that uh, were being developed toward the end of Lytton's reign, which when later implemented began to have good effect, that there were some ideas that were introduced that might have had good effect. So there, uh, I tend to stress the continuities rather than the changes in India because there are so many of these vested interests. But certainly the mood change, Gladstone's own view was, was quite different than that of Disraeli. He didn't play to empire as much as Disraeli did. Disraeli used empire to mobilize popular support when he could, and Gladstone tried to avoid that. But Gladstone could not escape being captured by it. It's also worth noting, too, that you know, Victoria loathed Gladstone, and that kind of also undermined it. Um, and for those of you who, uh, you know, um, of my vintage or older, there's a wonderful Alan Sherman song uh, called Disraeli, oh, Won't You Come Home, Disraeli, one of his songs. I haven't been able to find it in digital version, but it's uh, uh, Queen Victoria to the tune of uh, Oh, Bill Bailey, Won't You Come Home, Oh, Disraeli, Won't You Come Home, and it's a hoot. Um, so that, that, that also kind of limited the ability to change. The vested interests in India, the army, the civil service, etc., were very, very powerful uh, and re- would remain so and acted as a powerful constraint. Thanks. You mentioned earlier that he, sorry, Disraeli was criticized for being un-English or, or the policies or the, or the pomp and circumstance in 1877 were un-English. Was that a criticism of the actual Durbar and, and what happened or was that actually the, a criticism of the policies uh, for instance, empowering the princes and the, the local rulers. Part of the problem stems from, I think, the debate within England about what is English, because you have that kind of uh, tension between industrialization and modernization, and then you also have the kind of mythic village England and all that. Where the comments about being un-English were most sharply focused was actually on the title. That's where people really stuck themselves into this idea of calling it an empress. The Durbar was a rather paradoxical event because certainly you would have levies. I mean, you look at royal ritual in Britain, the levy, the king coming out. That's not unusual. It's certainly you know, common within in, in sort of uh, monarchy's traditions in, you know, in Britain and in Europe. The, so to have the Durbar wasn't necessarily seen as un-English. What was seen as kind of un-English and problematic was this kind of weird melange of some of these, these symbols. As far as the role of the princes, there would be some commentators in Britain who basically thought, do away with the princes. They were a barrier to progress. But there would be other people in England who would see the, the, the princes as critical partners in empire. And that kind of debate about the role of the princes would continue um, onwards. But where I think you would find the greatest consensus, at least in Britain in 1876-77, was the notion of the title that Victoria was becoming empress. This, this suggested kind of a despotic, arbitrary rule. And although it was you know, several centuries later, there's always that lurking fear in Britain of, of, of a dictator, the Cromwell. Um, and that was one reason why in the Victorian era, they were always very, very careful to limit the, the authority of the ruling family and their role within the military. There's this kind of lingering belief there that you could go the way of a continental despotic rule. And that's where the empress really caused problems. Hi. Um, thanks, Doug. I 
was wondering how much uh, uh, the ceremony of the Durbar in 1877 might have influenced the early beginnings of the nationalist movement. You have, the, of course, the Congress Party in 1885, but you also have Anandamath being published in 1882, I think it was, in Bande Mataram. And how much did that alienate, perhaps, or um, encourage um, dissent among that Indian upper-class elite that began to lead the nationalist movement at that time, the early nationals? There's, there's strong evidence that a lot of them were put off by it. It's sometimes difficult to say whether it was the Durbar. Uh, certainly a lot of them were, you know, questioned the value of princes and that, um, or whether it was other, other Lytton's policies. But you know, there's clearly a reaction against it. Typically, the Indian National Congress, everybody started in 1885, and they usually see the Ilbert Bill, this, this, this legal thing, as being the real kind of cause of it. I would say that events like this certainly fed into it. Um, some of the key officials, like uh, Alan Octavian Hume, were there. Um, his correspondence, although he actually played a role in staging it, he was also kind of critical of it. So uh, the, I think it, with retrospect, people looking back, say in the 1880s, looking at the Darbar and looking at kind of the entrenching of some of these conservative attitudes would be reacting to it. The immediate reaction at the time, I think, was uh, much more... Um, clouded. I don't think they quite knew what to make of it. Uh, there are certainly some of the Indian press, and bear in mind Lytton was obsessed with monitoring that press. Signs of, um, uh, of subversion he was constantly looking for. And also, it was Lytton who brought in the Vernacular Press Act that was intended to gag them. And I think you, you do have this kind of heavy-handed reproach. So the reaction of the nationalists which is gaining strength in this period of time, was no doubt fueled by what's happening in this period. But separating out what was the Darbar, what was famine, what was the Vernacular Press Act, I think would be, would be um, quite difficult. And just the personality of Lytton. I mean, he was so arrogant and dismissive of the educated, English-speaking Indian middle class. Uh, he wanted nothing to do with them. He wanted the princes to be a bulwark against them. Thank you very much indeed um, for your presentation. I was wondering if we look at the last of the Durbars, the one in 1911, and if you look at it as an instrument uh, in terms of, of, of governing, um, whether the British, and I don't say this in any sense of patriotism, but whether they'd learnt a few things, because what they were really trying to do, I think, was to move the capital from Calcutta to Delhi. The, the, the head, the, right, which was a difficult issue because there was a lot of vested interest amongst the European Indians at that time. I mean, the, 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 uh, the uh, powerful business interests in Calcutta who didn't want that moved. And you had on top of that indigenous and nationalistic aspirations as well, right? So um, did, do you not think that the Durbar on that occasion was sufficiently well spun uh, to use a modern analogy that they did get what they wanted out of it and they did understand the nature of that institution? Um, I, I'd be hesitant to go that far. I think the most uncontroversial was the 1903. I think that, in some ways, was the most uncontroversial in terms of what created the least amount of backlash. 1911, part of the problem was there was, was moving the capital. Uh, really, I think the British decision to move the capital played more to the way they thought the Indians saw them than the way the Indians themselves saw it. The British, you know, 
the clear intention to move the capital of Delhi, demonstrate a kind of a genealogy tracing back to the Mughals and everybody else, uh, set up a new ceremonial. New Delhi created this mammoth architecture designed to celebrate it. Yet within you know less than fifty years, they're gone. Um, there are also uh, you're dealing in 1911. I mean, the nationalist movement has really gained a lot of force. Uh, you get a lot more. Uh, it, it, it's isolated, but becoming more more uh, uh, volatile. Um, you know, much more strident nationalist movements in the Punjab and in Bengal. There's acts of terrorism, um, some of which are rather comical. Uh, one of my favorites was the uh, attempt to kill Harding with a snake. Um, but the, the the snake handler didn't know how to handle the snake, and the snake bit the snake handler, and he died instead. Um, there was the, the bomb thrower who didn't calculate the fuse right, and it blew him up. So there, there's kind of a odd elements to it, but there, there's clearly this kind of building pressure in 1911. I think some of the ceremonial stuff, it's become, it's less ad lib, it's much more bureaucratically driven. Uh, they've got uh, some of the logistics things worked out better. You don't find quite as many comical aspects as in this one. Um, so from, a, from a, uh, a performance perspective, I think 1903, 1911 were working better. But from a political perspective, they were really kind of celebrating something which was already becoming redundant. I mean, the, 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 the speed with which the princes basically politically and again, I, I, Stephen Inglis and I, who uh, you know, I, I defer to him on this, culturally and in indirect ways, the princes still have tremendous clout or can have tremendous clout in India even to this day. But the kind of position the British invested them within, that was dying away really, really quickly. And, and it was in the face of, you know, what was, by 1911, it was quote unquote modern industrial urban India that was really driving things. And if you look at the princely states, most of them were in rural, underdeveloped, largely economically marginal areas. Uh, they weren't playing the role that they even were playing in 1877. Any more questions? It's hardly worth the walk all the way over here. I just want to know, really want to know how you spell Brahmagen. <laughs> Brahmagen, Brahmagen. B-R-U-M-M-A-G-E-M. Brahmagem. Yeah, it's one of those, it's one of those words, and I, and I, sorry, it's one of those words. I think I really what I need to do is actually do a, a crop proper search of it. I was just going through some more notes this weekend, and it kept cropping up, and all these, it was being used to describe this, and I thought that that's very very telling. You know, the idea that something that's trashy is, you know, the word for it is also associated with the workplace of the world. It's that wonderful contradiction. Thank you. Brummies come from Birmingham, so they're called Brummies. Well, yeah, it, yeah, the word is the, the, the way, way, why Birmingham. They they latched on to this mm-hmm. is what I find. Um, can I just go back a hundred years from eighteen seventies to seventeen seventies? As you say, nothing much seemed to have changed because there was a terrible famine, as you know, in seventeen seventies. Do some people say to to British failure of British policies? They didn't seem to have learned anything between these two times. And secondly, um, I'm reading about Hastings, who was not a viceroy. He was a governor general, I guess. Uh, can you tell me when the term viceroy came into use and, and why? Uh, I'll, I'll answer. I'll, I'll deal with the first one and the second one. Uh, on the famine, what's interesting, I mean, the, the, the famine in the 1770s, um, 
you know, that was a time of tremendous chaos and all the rest of it. The, the, the infrastructure, everything was lacking. Certainly British policies made it a much, much worse. There's no doubt about that. But over the course of the 19th century, certainly the British did begin to learn about famines. Two years before the 1876 famine, there was a famine in Bengal with much less loss of life. And that was because the then governor um, had actually opened up, had not only tried to provide more food for the poor, but they regulated the price. The government intervened in the marketplace to try and keep food prices down to ensure that was accessible. Under, in 1876, though, with this famine, with this rather curious individual who's futile one minute and a free market trader the next, he was determined that the market should regulate the price, and he refused to allow the governors of Madras and Bombay to intervene to regulate the price of grain. And that, I would say, was, was, was the real critical difference here. And again, it's this kind of slavish dedication to free, free market ideology. And there's obvious analogies to the way the British responded to the Irish famine, too. Um, I mean, they, they, they didn't learn the famine, I mean, the Irish famine. They learned a bit later on, and they lapsed again. Um, so there's, and there's been some wonderful histories of the famine, and I, I, I by no means pretend to be an expert in it. Viceroy uh, Governor General, strictly speaking, the word Viceroy really should only come into use after 1858. Because the Viceroy, the title is associated with the representative of the Queen. It had been used before in Ireland, for example, the, the Viceroy, often used also with Lord Lieutenant, there are various words. After 1858, the, the individuals in India are, most properly speaking, Governor General and Viceroy. Governor General is, in a sense, their political title. Viceroy is sort of the symbolic title associated with their relationship to the um, uh, uh, to the Queen. In popular parlance, what tended to happen was after 1858, Viceroy becomes the more common word, and again, it, it invokes that kind of regal quality in the relationship with the Queen, which, as I said at the very beginning, Victoria really went out of her way to encourage. I was just wondering, you mentioned that uh, there was some concern over the response to this event and the rest of the empire. If you could comment further on that, how this was received, and also how what the kind of broader international response was to this, if any, if any contemporaries picked up on these paradoxes that you've, you've discussed. Unfortunately, I've not dug deeply enough into it. I'm relying more on what Lytton is being fed to him. I mean, he's, he's constantly soliciting information, as is Disraeli and others. Um, they speculate without any evidence that the Russians were impressed. And again, that they obviously would want to think that. I've looked at a few colonial newspapers, and it was noted. Often they would just reprint stories from the Times and all that. There doesn't seem to be a big take-up uh, about it at all. Uh, and certainly, you know, look at the date of it, 1877. It's 10 years after, uh, you know, 1867 in Canada. So the whole notion of a new title for the Queen with relationship to Canada would not have worked, and obviously there's a Quebec thing too. Um, I think that the issue that the colonies may react badly to it was something that critics were, were looking to. There's no evidence that I found. But then again, I, I've, I've not combed all the newspapers. What I have seen, whether it's New Zealand or Australian newspapers, is 
oh, here's something exotic happening elsewhere. They'd reprint a picture. But the, the, the text would be taken from the Times, Illustrated, London News, or whatever. They, they themselves were not sufficiently interested to actually really talk about it very much. Where I think would be interesting are some of the imperial associations, if you could get into some of them to see what they were doing, where there were local events designed to coincide. And again, I'm just speculating now that, that you may find that kind of pockets of enthusiasm elsewhere. I've not seen anything, certainly, that, that, that actually was manifested sufficiently that, that Lytton or Disraeli picked up on it. Any more questions? If not, I would like to thank you very much for an excellent talk. Uh, you, you know, I realize now why it's so tricky to sort of try and very quickly, in the superficial way, learn this history. It's fascinating. I feel as if we just started. But that was an absolutely marvelous talk, and you really brought it to life for me, certainly. Um, I'd like to just tell people about the other talks. Uh, the next one in this series is Dr. Dipali Diwan, from, who is a curator of um, an art historian and South Asian visual culture um, specialist. And she's going to be talking about a 19th century photographer and his work in uh, some of the princely courts. So we'll have another intimate view. And that is on February 9th. Then on February 23rd, we have Harry Krishnan, who is a dancer and actor with In Dance. And he'll be, I'm sure, talking and performing. And I think you'll probably have a musician here talking about some of the performances that the, the courts certainly were, were patrons of. And then on the 24th of March, we have Amin Jaffa, who is at Christie's. And we'll talk about some of the luxury goods that were made. We also have next Wednesday is, is part of our what we're calling Festival Week for this exhibition. So on Wednesday evening in Walker Court, we have a performance by Debashish um, Sinha, which is called Shruti. And he's performing, he has video from Calcutta and music, and he puts the two together in, as a sort of perform performance, and he also will be on Harmonian. And on Saturday the 29th, Indance will be performing in Walker Court, and I think that will be spectacular. They're bringing quite a number of performers. And there will also be family programming on Sunday and cooking demonstrations and tea and all sorts of other things. So please look on the website for that. But thank you very much, Doug, for an excellent evening. Thank you for listening to this Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. For additional recordings, as well as information on upcoming programming and events, please visit us online at ago.net slash talks.